the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is indeed Elna Schutz, and for this one hour of the week we look at some science around the news around our world around our ordinary lives there's something for everyone in this show and i'm here of course with my team behind the scenes as always my producer bridget lepere who you will hear from in a moment and take by we're here to just look at some science for this one hour thank you so much for being with us and i hope you learn a lot it's going to be a good show and we have quite a nice mix of things as as always, in our main story, we find out more about the beautiful baobab tree. You've seen it in books and heard about it in stories. And of course, it is very iconic. But the tree has a lot of other uses. So there's that nutritious fruit that is high in vitamin C and widely known, especially amongst uh, you know people who love a good liqueur. It's widely known as being um, part of Amarula, of course. And the bark of the tree can be stripped and used for everything from hats to ropes. And the beautiful thing about this is that the tree actually regenerates this bark. So there are just some some basic facts for you about the baobab tree. There's often a hollow of some kind in these trees and a particular one in Zimbabwe is said to hold up to 40 people. I've heard of shops, prisons and bus shelters in baobabs apparently. But not all is well with our beautiful leafy giants. And these trees have survived literally thousands of years but are dying now. There's a lot of speculation around this being linked to climate change. And of course, we want to know what's going on. And is there anything we can do to stop this? We speak tonight to the researchers who are working on this in our main story, the death of very old baobabs in South Africa and Southern Africa. After that story, we'll get into unscience, which is the little part of our show where we look at ridiculous research or just something within the sciences that's a little bit strange that you might not have known before but that'll just add a little bit to your life and today we ask the question whether it's really possible that you could be brushing your teeth with a little bit of the Stackfontein cave. (laughs) The reason why is because we're looking at calcium carbonate which is a mineral that exists in rock but is also found in toothpaste. Later in the show after that, we are trying something new. I'm very excited about this because science is something that is so deeply embedded in all of our lives. We're all curious about understanding ourselves and the world, but it's not always easy to get to the root of things and you're not always going to find clear-cut answers to all of your questions. So in this new part of the show, we are leaning into those questions. We're asking whether that old wives tale of fixing this or that really works. Whether that thing you've been told by a friend is really just a myth. Or whether the way a book or a movie puts something is 
what would happen in real life or not? <laughs> so we're asking and we're trying to find these answers. And today's question is all about water dousing. So that's when people say that they find underground water reserves by walking around with, say, an egg or a certain stick. It's quite a controversial one, both for the believers and the skeptics alike. And we're going to try to get to the bottom of it, put some science in there and see if there's really something to this. So all of that is on the show today. And we will kick it off with the news as we always do. But I would love to hear from you, especially on that last one, water dousing. Do you think that's real? Share your stories with us on Facebook and on Twitter. It's VOWFMVOW. And you can use that hashtag Science Inside to make sure we see your tweets and your Facebook comments. Tell us what you think about the Baobabs, about the toothpaste, um, everything that's on the show today and make sure you keep listening but if you did miss it or you want to share it with a friend that's not a problem because the podcast is up on itunes also on slash science if you do want to interact with us right now during the show and you're listening live you can use a whatsapp line 084-078-4912 let's get into the show by getting into our news up next. This week's Science Headline. As always, I need to share science news with someone. Hi, Bridget LaPere. Hi, Elna. How are you? I'm very good and I'm excited to hear what you have in the news for us today. Well, this week we are talking about opioids um, and they say that 500,000 years of life expectancy is lost to opioid overdose in Ohio. Mm-hmm. So op- opioids are a class of drugs that include the illegal drug heroin and synthetic opioids such as fentanyl and pain relievers available legally by prescription such as codeine, morphine and many others. Okay. And in a new study that was conducted between 2010 and 2016 by the University of Toledo's College of Health and Human Services and the Ohio Alliance for Innovation in Popular Health, which is under the University of Ohio, they revealed that more than 500,000 years of life expectancy was was lost in Ohio during that period. And this maps out the number of years of life loss lost to opioid deaths in Ohio between 2010 and 2016. So, opioid, opioid deaths, um, opioid de- death is preventable and overdo- overdose can be managed, but it continues to increase in the state of Ohio. Mm, that is, of course, quite a serious thing. And I think these kind of uh, statistics and research can show us in numbers something that is, of course, a very complex reality. But this number, these you know, number of years that they calculated, which is life expectancy, how does that work? Well, they constructed um, these numbers using data abstracted from death certificates dating between 2010 and 2016 from the Ohio Department of Health, uh, Bureau of Vital Statistics. And they found that the years of life lost due to premature death was calculated at the state and country level and patterns of opioid overdose, overdose mortality were mapped geographically and being monitored over time. So the researchers examined the impact of opioid 
overdose deaths on the mortality rate and also to bring the shortened lifespan of Ohioans to the fore on a state and national level. So according to the study, it is apparent that opioid-related deaths are most prominent among young people in their prime years of life. Okay, so I want to go back to that number that you mentioned early, earlier, for 500,000 years of life expectancy lost. But put that into terms for us in terms of the number of actual deaths related to opioid abuse. Apparently, just over 13,000 Ohioans died from opioid overdose during the study period. While opioid overdose accounted for just over half a million years of life lost during the period of the study, in 2016 alone, opioid overdose had the effect of lowering life expectancy of an average Ohioan um, citizen by 1.1 years. Okay, so those statistics um, can mean a lot of things. Please, you know, put it into context for us. What does it say about pain medication and how we're using it? Well, this pain's a very grim narrative depicting an epidemic which is preventable, but which is spiraling out of our control. Okay, that does sound quite concerning. Well, and the concern is that the productive time that could have been used on parenting or working or being an active citizen is being consumed by opioid use and fighting the addiction. And the number of deaths caused by a drug called fentanyl increased dramatically over the recent years from just um, 77 deaths in 2010 to 2,357. And the number of, 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 of years of the number of years of life lost due to overuse were just over ninety six thousand. So these numbers, <laughs> it's never something simple. Um, there are lives behind this. There are people who've made different choices or who have had pain, whatever it might be. How do you counter or try to work against this kind of problem? Well, there is some good news to the story. I know the numbers are devastating, but three researchers from a company called Biotherapeutics in Massachusetts believe they may be on the verge of creating a revolutionary non-addictive painkiller. They have developed a pill called Blue 181, which could be vital in breaking the vicious cycle linked to the growing opioid crisis in the USA. The claim is that the drug is 50 times more powerful than the morphine that we, we, we are accustomed to, but without the, after, the addictive after effects. And this drug was produced to counteract um, the opioid overdose and help millions of people who suffer from pain but have no other safer therapeutic option. Hmm. Okay, that already sounds quite good, but tell us more about how it would be better than the opioids that are already on the market. Sure. It clings on a different receptor on the spinal cord and this doesn't affect other parts of the brain which give rise to a dependency on um, on the drug and the high um, so the, the association to uh, addiction. So this action of Blue 181 drug reduces the perception of pain. So the drug has not been tested on humans yet but in the next five years, we could see the first clinical trial. Okay, I'm 
you know I'm always very skeptical mm-hmm. about things that haven't um, been proven by human trial yet and it takes a long time for these things to be developed and yet I am happy that um, these that this is in process because especially when it comes to opioid use for pain a lot of people who become addicted it's because they've been in pain and because they have serious medical conditions and I think these addictions um, if we can avoid the addictive part of of these medications that's pretty that's pretty great and and could change the lives of many people Mm -hmm. yes it will so today in my story, um, I want to tell you about NASA's Opportunity Rover. It is in trouble on Mars, Bridget. This story comes from NASA itself, of course, as well as many outlets like ENCA, Smithsonian, MAG, lots of people reported on this. Oh, no. So I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but uh, NASA has several rovers or little robots on Mars. Two of them are Opportunity and Spirit. They were both sent up in 2003 to look for signs of past life on the planet. And they were only going to be on mission for about a month and a half. But it was going so well that the work actually kept continuing. So Spirit lived up to 2009 when it got itself stuck, unfortunately. And it was then officially declared as being off mission in 2011. But the old opportunity after all these years, was still going just fine till till recently. <laughs> I love their names. So what happened now? <laughs> yeah, right now, not so much opportunity happening. <laughs> uh, there's been a massive dust, dust storm on the planet, um, and it got so big, this dust storm, that it covered an area of around 35 million square kilometers. So that means... A quarter of the planet Mars, if you're sitting there, is you won't see the sun. The sun is blocked out by the dust. And you might ask yourself, oh no, did the dust get into opportunity? Did it damage the machine? But that's actually not uh, what was happening here. It's purely a case of this older technology of opportunity being solar powered. So no sun, no power. And so it wasn't able to fully function. And it went into a sort of sleep mode to protect itself and shut everything down except its master clock and they last heard from it on june 10th so what what happens now they literally just wait it out so nasa is waiting um, they know that opportunity is covered in dust but they don't think thankfully that it'll be buried so it's not going to be that covered thankfully and they think that this rover will stay asleep until there is enough power to charge the battery at least a little bit then it'll wake up by itself and they'll be able to communicate with it again so they are watching it very carefully hoping the signals will come back but it is a big storm and I've got to say I am not quite as optimistic because Opportunity is an old rover. It was never meant to last this long and there's a chance that this might be the end of it. Well, talk about lost opportunity or should I say rather <laughs> sleeping opportunity. <laughs> but well, that's good. Uh, but doesn't NASA have more rovers up there? 
Yes, yeah. So there is also Curiosity, which is bigger and newer, having gone up in uh, 2012. It is currently on the other side of Mars, but it's getting darker there with the storm brewing. But here's the good news. Um, Curiosity is nuclear powered, so there's not so much to be worried about. They're not particularly concerned. There's also no big concern for InSight, which you might have heard of. It's the very recently launched mission. It's currently on its way to Mars and it will land in November so the storm shouldn't really affect that either. Hmm. You know what they say about what they say about curiosity. <laughs> Kill them. Let me leave it there. Is there something that they can do to prevent these problems in future though? Well, Opportunity is old, as I said. It has that all the sun-reliant technology. So really, that's just what it is. And I think they've gotten more out of it than they thought from the start. So I, I'm sure NASA is sad to, to let Opportunity go if it does die. But I think, you know, you have to have losses sometimes. But scientists are using this chance to study Martian, Martian dust storms and try to better predict if this happens in the future. And this is not just important for rovers, because rovers can, you know, go to sleep. But as we all know, humans are planning to get other humans up to Mars soon. So if there are humans in a camp there, we want to know how dust storms will affect their lives there. I do want to say, if you're interested in the story, you can follow what's happening. There is a Twitter page called Mars Rover where you can see all kinds of things. Um, so, yeah, for now, opportunity is not looking too good, but we'll, we'll see what happens with it. Let's get into our um, full show, our full story after the break. Now that we've heard some of what's happening in the world of science, we are going to find out from the researchers themselves, why are African baobabs dying? You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome to the show. Remember, you can find the Science Inside online. We are um, under Vow FM on Facebook and Twitter. Just make sure you use hashtag Science Inside. Let's get into our main story for the show tonight. I want you to think and picture for yourself the African baobab. It's large and strong and central to a lot of stories from local legends to books like The Little Prince. It's a silent African giant. And when I think of it, I think of such beauty. I do not think of this sound. That is loud. <laughs> and that is a mass spectrum spectrometry spectrometry oh my tongue wow a mass spectrometry accelerator there we go a big red machine that stands in the Itemba labs here in Joburg and does radiocarbon dating it breaks something down into tiny pieces and is able to give you a pretty good idea of how old that something is something like a like a baobab. So the African baobab is not just the biggest angiosperm tree, that's a seed producing flowering plant. It is also known as the longest living and their life is exactly what we now know more about thanks to that very loud machine that you will hear a little bit more of later. A team of researchers found that a number of the oldest baobabs in southern Africa are dying prematurely 
and they have some ideas why but that's actually not what they set out to research in the first place so let's start at the beginning Stephen Woodbourne is the Senior Accelerator Mass Spectrometry Scientist at these Itemba labs here in Johannesburg, and he was one of the researchers on this. There were two groups of researchers that got together on this project. The, the first group was the Romanian group, and their interest was really just to understand the age of the trees. My group was working on trying to get climate records from trees, and baobabs turned out to be a really good subject to study because they lived for so long and because we needed to get dates for our samples and the Romanians needed to get dates for their samples and we were using the same sampling technique it just made sense that we worked together. That led to some very interesting developments. The first surprise was that baobabs are structured differently than one might think. So imagine for yourself if you've ever seen a little slice of a tree, maybe you did this when you were a child, but if you think about how a tree has rings that go from the oldest in the middle to the youngest um, on the bark, it's those rings, one ring represents a year and the life of the, life of the tree. I'm sure all of us or many of us have sat and, and counted those trying to guess how old a tree is. But when the researchers were thinking like that, that's not what the baobab was saying to them. They saw instead that the ages of the tree started getting older and older as they uh, bored into the tree. But then it started getting younger again as they approached the center of the tree, which is, of course, not what they were expecting. And what we discovered was that Many of these trees are made up of multiple stems that are fused together. So as the, as the samples were getting older and older, it was because we were going in towards the center of one of those stems. And then we would end up going out towards the outside of the stem. Um, and that's really not apparent from, the, from when you just look at the trees. Once we got that sorted out, we, we really were onto something. We could start identifying different architectures on the trees where cavities that we used to believe were... Uh, spaces in the tree where wood originally grew and had been hollowed out through one or other process were in fact just the, the, the gaps between these, these different stems. It turns out that this kind of structure is part of the reason why baobabs live for as long as they do. It gives them some strength together from these different parts of the tree and it protects them to some degree that strength does protect them from threats like elephant tusks or harsh weather so once the researchers understood the structure they were able to take an accurate sample to estimate how old some of these trees were so of course with a big pair of you can't just slice a big part of it off you have to bore very carefully inside you need to know where to go and what to do and that's exactly what they did and baobabs are so big and have such a complex build that it is quite difficult to sample them and as i said um earlier normally you would just count the rings once you have your sample but that isn't going to work with baobab trees because the rings don't correspond to years so it might be because of wet seasons or cold and dry but it's not as simple as saying there are five rings therefore this tree is five years old so the researchers needed something better something more accurate for something as old as a baobab so the team used radiocarbon 
dating. Let's go back into that large, loud room with Stefan. It's very noisy in here. We're in the accelerator hall now. The particle accelerator is the big red instrument that you see in the background over there. What's happening is we have carbon samples that have been prepared in, uh, in our laboratory. This, this would be, you know, when we start off with a baobab sample, it would be a piece of wood which we then clean up, get rid of any chemical um, deposits that the tree might have made. And we end up with the carbon that was deposited by the tree at the time that that ring was formed. So if that's the center of the tree, that would give us the age of the tree. We then need to measure the amount of carbon-14 that's present. Very loud room, but that's a little bit of a look into the process. Radiocarbon dating, it's quite uh, complex and I don't have time to go into it in detail, so I do encourage you to have a look at it. But that is, of course, how a lot of things are dated from fossils to trees. And in simple terms, basically they compare levels of a certain carbon, carbon-14, inside of something to what we know about levels of that element and how those levels have decayed over time and where they have been at in the past. That's roughly how the scientists can know how old something is, like the baobabs. The oldest trees were from Zimbabwe and they're in the order of two and a half thousand years. Most of the trees that we're dealing with are older than a thousand years. Um, and most of the very big baobabs that you see in, in say, Limpopo province in South Africa, those are, that's a cohort of trees that we expect to be about a thousand years old. The researchers started by looking at trees that had already fallen over naturally because, of course, that was easier to sample. But over the research period, which was quite a few years, they got more and more dead trees. Trees were dying and they realized there was a trend forming. The article that you might have read online recently that started this and put it in the news was about how nine of the 13 oldest baobabs have died partially or entirely over the last 12 years. But Stefan does clarify that there are far more trees dying beyond just the oldest ones. That's just what this particular article was focusing on. So when they try to find out why are these trees dying in ways that they really shouldn't be, they saw no clear indication of a threat or a pest or anything like that. And a thousand years is actually still quite young for a baobab, believe it or not. So they had to ask themselves, why is this happening? Right, well, the natural old age for baobabs is really old. So, you know, we know that, they can, that we can have trees that are several thousand years old. When we, when we looked at it, we, we discovered a couple of clues. The first is that many of the baobabs at the core, in, right in the center, are, are rotten. And we've seen this from Madagascar all the way through to Namibia. And we're not sure if that's part of a natural process, uh, whether the trees can heal from that. But it definitely structurally affects the trees. Once the trees are structurally affected, they're, they're big and heavy. If they fall over and the roots are compromised, then there's no ways that they will survive. So that, that's one of the reasons. Um, but what is driving that rotting or what's driving those changes? We speculate is, is actually climate. 
they are still in the process of working through all of that data, I do have to tell you. So these aren't things that are published or proven or publicly said yet, but it does open up some very interesting ideas. From the climate records that we've got from the Baobabs, we know that they've endured droughts and wet periods in the past. So it's not intrinsically rainfall. But what is changing quite significantly at the moment is temperature. Temperatures are rising at an unprecedented rate. So when baobabs are faced with droughts now, they're not just the same as droughts that they had in, in the past. It's a combination of drought plus much hotter conditions. And we suspect that this is what's producing the stress on the trees, putting huge demand on their resources and could ultimately be the cause of, of their death. Even though that is what it seems like, of course, Stefan is, um, as well as the other researchers, trying to understand this and um, hopefully bring out some, some more research on this because it is difficult to prove this kind of thing because the kinds of changes in climate that would bring about this very specific uh, death of trees is very particular to a location of a certain tree. But they are using temperature records and climate models to see if they can prove some correlations. The reason also why they think that it might be climate change, not something else, is exactly because these older trees are dying. The whatever it is that's, that's causing the demise of these old trees is something that they have never experienced in their life. So for two and a half thousand years, in the case of this oldest, the oldest tree that we've worked on, whatever is causing their death, it hasn't happened. Otherwise, you know, the, the trees wouldn't reach this age. And so we, we would probably have to consider, for example, sort of microhabitat and uh, the possibility that something is affecting at a very local level. But certainly if we're right, and this is climate change and it is driven by temperature, then we would start seeing this affecting across all age ranges, and that's exactly what we're seeing. If these strong old trees that have survived so much are dying now because of climate change, Stefan says it's not just about the baobabs. They're the canary in the gold mine. It's another warning sign for us humans that we should be taking very seriously around climate change. And he gave a nice analogy or um, uh, made a very good point in terms of uh, trees not being able to migrate as birds uh, could. So with climate change, certain species, even humans, could adapt. But it is going to affect all of the earth um, as climate change progresses. And the baobabs are another sign of that. If you missed any of that story and you'd like to listen to it again or share it with someone, tell one of your friends about what you heard, make sure you do catch it on the podcast, The Science Inside, on iTunes and online. But let's shift gears after the break to our unscience. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on The Science Inside. This is The Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show here on The Science Inside. We love covering all kinds of things, from the recent to the old, from the ridiculous to the very serious. But just for a little break in the middle of the show, we go to unscience. That's what we like to call it. And it's a time where we look at some strange science, if you can call it that, but not too weird. It's very applicable to our lives. It's where we look at what scientists spend all kinds of time and effort 
on to understand better. Uh, and today's Unscience was produced by Bridget LePere, who is here with me. Let's get into it. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Now I'm back <laughs> with unscience for this week. So, what would you say if I were to tell you that at some point in your life you may have tasted Stadfontein Caves or one of the other caves in South Africa? I would tell you that Aquafresh did something very wrong. <laughs> that sounds. That doesn't sound like what uh, what is supposed to happen in my toothpaste. But wait, by taste, do you mean literally? I I would have like nibbled on a little bit of a cave. Well, yeah, something like that. Well, according to Dr. Dominic Stratford, a paleontologist at the Organizational Unit School of Geography, Archaeology and Environmental Studies, he suggested that the very same ingredient called carbon carbonate found in your toothpaste is also the key ingredient contained in making the interior walls or the rocks of the Stagfontein Caves. <laughs> nice and close here in Johannesburg. Um, Stagfontein Caves are usually where you might go with tourists or a school group. That's not where I would go to source my toothpaste. <laughs> so this calcium carbonate, what does it do in the toothpaste? Calcium carbonate is an abrasive ingredient that helps scrape off plaque of your teeth. It is a combination of calcium, carbon and oxygen. Other examples of abrasives are calcium pyrophosphate, decasium phosphate, sodium bicarbonate and hydrated silica. And whitening toothpastes do, however, contain too many abrasives which can wear down the enamel or cause your teeth to be very sensitive. Okay, that makes sense, Bridget, but I still don't get, just because it's made out of the same thing, what's the link here between the caves and my toothpaste? Well, dolomitic limestone formed Stairfontein Caves, and they were formed over millions of years. And this began as far back as 20 million years back. And most caves, including Stairfontein, were were formed over many uh, were formed over many by slightly acidic, uh, mainly by slightly acidic rainwater, which had seeped through soluble rock, dissolving the rock thereby causing the the hollowness of, Mm -hmm. of the cave. Oh, that makes sense. So the constant dripping of water from the rain forms stalactites and underground water seeping through the cave floors gave rise to the development of stalagmites. In the following, Dominic explains how this all happened. It's the same thing that cement's made of, it's the same thing that toothpaste is made of. But calcium carbonate, when it's pure, it's white, like this. And so what happens is, you can hear the dripping, Okay, so what happens is water starts to seep through the rock. And as it comes through the rock, it absorbs some of that calcium carbonate. And what happens is when it hits a big chamber, the water evaporates and leaves you with just calcium carbonate. And so that's why you have these white things. And so you have these long stalactites because that's the water. The water will gradually drip down. And over tens of thousands of years, they'll keep growing, growing, growing down until they meet the floor. In, 19, in 1896, pardon me, an Italian miner called Guglielmo Martinelia, his prospects were on exp- 
exploiting the abundant lime in the cave for its commercial potential in the gold mining and construction industries. And when this lime is is burned, it yields limestone. And this is what miners were were after in the limestone. And that's where a flow flowstone is and a mineral it's it's a mineral de- deposit called calcite which is found in limestone okay when this is dissolved in water it is deposited then the water dis- loses its dissolved carbonate dioxide and lime and um, gold mining change the lames- the landscape in um, in and around the cradle of human uh, wor- in humankind world heritage sites forever. The Stelfontaine Caves attracted miners because of their stalactites and stalagmites which are rich in deposits of calcium carbonate and flowstone. Mm-hmm. Martinelia and his men came to the cave and blew up the surface openings of the cave. It was coincidentally also during that time when members of the South African Geological Society had reported sightings of interesting, beautiful creations which had formed within the caves. So when people first came in the caves here, sort of 1896, over 100 years ago, when they came in, they said this whole cave system was filled with these beautiful stalactites. So they said it was absolutely beautiful, the most amazing cave they'd ever seen. And so they tried to preserve it But the problem was that there were also people, miners, who wanted to use the calcium carbonate to make cement, toothpaste, whatever it is they wanted to do with that. And so they had a dispute. And the miners won, and they came in with dynamite. They blasted everything out. And so what used to be an absolutely incredible, beautiful cave was then destroyed apparently within weeks. The good thing, from my perspective, is that when the miners came in and blasted it off, they also blasted off some of the fossils. And so we've started to find fossils here. And so only because of that mining were we then able to find these fossils and then be able to track those fossils underground where we could find them much better preserved. Bridget, that's quite interesting. Um, And sad at the same time that so many uh, parts of the cave were destroyed. But you're still not answering the question. How would they have made toothpaste from this rock? I'll ease you into it. But I still (laughs) need to give you some facts. The fossils found in the cave were never from animals that lived in the cave to begin with. They fell into the cave shafts and built up giant-like inverted cones on the cave floors. And these fossils were were cemented by lime-charged water, forming concrete-like brescia, a type of rock. And bones within these talus cones were mineralized by calcium carbonate and stained with manganese and iron from the dolomitic soil. So, to answer your question finally, the mining companies would blow up the brescia, grind it up and make cement and things like toothpaste, from the calcium carbonate. And of course, they would also add other ingredients such as fluoride, detergents, moisturizers, and hemictants, the substance that makes the toothpaste smooth and gooey-like. So, unusual, unlikely, unscience. Mm, I'm also um, very happy that that doesn't exist anymore. Really, toothpaste for... uh, 
that's not necessary to create, you know, to, to break down caves just so that some miner can have toothpaste. Yeah, it's sure. a no brain. <laughs> yeah, maybe we're just privileged here. We get our toothpaste just from the store, but I have never thought of, you know, exploding some caves for that. Thanks so much for our unscience this week. After the break, we head on to other and new things. We have something new to share with you. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. This is the Science Inside with Elna. We have something new to share with you. I'm very excited about this. This is something on the show that I know for years people have been hoping to hear. And finally, it is here for you. We are starting a new section on the show that is going to look at some of the questions that we have in our ordinary lives that science can hopefully help to answer. Maybe that's a myth. Your mom always told you, do this and that, and then your skin will be nice, or you won't get sick, or do this and that and I don't know but myths or any kind of big questions that you have you can now send into the science inside because we're going to try to get down to the bottom of it and I can promise you that it's it's going to be very interesting but we won't always find clear-cut answers because for a lot of these kind of things people are deeply enthusiastic and think yes it is that way I believe it or no that is rubbish that's not science so today we are starting our first one off about a very interesting subject welcome again to Bridget LaPere kick us off about this question that we're looking at today Today, we are exploring how science and indigenous knowledge is being used in Botswana to find natural water reserves. That's good. We all want to find more water, especially in water-scarce places like Botswana. Sure. And now we are talking about water dowsing. And dowsing in an, is an unexplainable event in which people use things like eggs, forked twigs, bottles, wire or pendulums to find missing and hidden objects. Dowsing also goes by many other names such as witching, divining, and doodle-bugging. Doodle-bugging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm intrigued. And dowsing can, uh, can be traced back, sorry, as far as 8,000 years back uh, to the ancient murals of Atlas Mountains of North America, which depict a dowser holding a forked twig in search of water. And this practice has been mostly commonly used for finding underground water reserves or missing jewelry but has also been used in ghost hunting and fortune telling hmm, i'm not sure about the ghosts but when it comes to water that's very interesting especially that word water dowsing i've heard of this practice before from different kinds of people i didn't know that that is what it was called but let's get into it what exactly is why did you come up with water dowsing the water dowsing subject came into question when we came across a video of a man uh, practicing this ancient methodology in search of underground springs of water. He held an egg in his hand and before we knew it, lo and behold, the egg stood on its end and this meant that he was standing on untapped water reserves. This method may be old, but there are many people 
all over the world who are still practicing it and we went out to find out whether there is some science behind this practice or if it's just science fiction or is it just photoshop <laughs> is it just a very good video it, yeah <laughs> i spoke to him to the man in in, in the video a civil engineer working at the Gansi district council in Botswana who himself had not practiced dowsing before but was told and taught by his elders and in the following clip he explains my name is I stay in Botswana. I'm a native of Botswana. I studied my engineering in Devon, University of Kazan Natal. That method is an indigenous knowledge method used to locate water aquifer. So actually you can use an egg, some sticks, even a bottle of water. You know those bottles they use in anointing oils can use those to search for water. So for the egg, you just use an egg from a supermarket. So then you just lay it flat on your hands, then move around a field. I think it has to do with magnetic fields because you can even use that to search for buried cables or water pipes if you don't know the exact locations. So when you reach an aquifer, on top of the aquifer, the egg points upwards. Then when you pass the aquifer, it will fall down. It's not magical, it's just something to do with magnetic fields on the ground. All those ignorant methods, so like the water in the bottle, or you see two straight peaks across each other, anyone can do Okay, so he's talking about magnetic fields between you holding the egg and the water or whatever you might be holding and the water underground. What are other experts saying about this? Other scientists say a dowser's ability is related to their body's reaction to an abnormality in the Earth's magnetic field and which this could cause, uh, this could be caused by the underground water. The notion is that the dowser serves an in, as an electrical conductor cutting a magnetic field generating enough voltage to produce an electrical pot- potential large enough to cause an unconscious hand motion the dowsing rod is used as a mechanical amplifier but i also spoke to a hydrogeologist christine colvin who is the senior manager of freshwater programs at the world wildlife fund who is not quite sure whether dowsing is a myth or it's something that that is being used that can be used there are lots of rumors and myths about people who can find underground water using eggs or sticks or even coat hangers and particularly in the desert environments people do that there have been some tests done that then compare that against the scientific methods most of which are a kind of geophysics that help to locate changes in the structure in the rocks underground or will be sensitive to a higher level of fluid water underground and will indicate where the water is. And that's today what we use in order to site boreholes and decide where to drill, particularly in a difficult and a dry area. And as far as I know as a hydrogeologist, where those tests have been done and have then been verified by actually drilling, and they've compared the results of the geophysical tests versus the indigenous knowledge tests, the geophysics generally comes out better. It's not 100%, but it gives you a better probability of getting water, and the indigenous knowledge doesn't score as well. Okay, so how do these people um, who do believe in this, who use this ancient knowledge that she was speaking about, how exactly do they 
do it, especially when it comes to the egg. I'm quite interested about um, how the egg would move. The craft is an old craft and it's been used all over the world and it cuts across cultures and eras and the technique is the same all over. So I'll leave it to Lesuadula to explain that. For the bottles or perfume testers, so what you do, you fill it with water when you reach an alcohol and you turn it upside down, the water won't spill. The bottle won't empty. Only this indigenous knowledge is that you use both metal to cross-check. Use the egg, then use the bottle again to verify the location. That's where the water is. You can now drill there. So water dowsing can be carried out by anybody and there is no right or wrong technique. And uh, even though that's the case, Christian Colvin begs to differ on this saying that... Um, uh, that there is no scientific logic behind the indigenous methods. But as far as water dowsing is concerned, science cannot validate the occurrences and that there's only people's knowledge being um, that, that plays a role in finding these water resources. There is a, a test with eggs, for instance, to find out if your egg is rotten, you can put it in a bowl of water and if it's rotten, it will float. And that's because as the egg starts to rot, it starts to produce hydrogen sulfide gas in the egg, which makes the egg more buoyant. And so that makes sense. And that can be proven. It's been tested by science. And that's a really good test. So that's an example of indigenous knowledge that does work. And there's a clear explanation as to why it works. But in the tests that have been done where they compare indigenous knowledge about where to find water or not when you're using a tool, the tools themselves don't respond. But sometimes the indigenous people have a good enough understanding of their own landscapes to know that springs are more likely to be associated with this big white quartz band that's running along the mountainside. And so they direct where to drill, actually based on their own knowledge, not based on the tool, the stick or the egg that they claim is directing them. I guess we always want science to have these beautiful, unanimous, straightforward responses to things that seem a little bit less um, obvious. And when it comes to water dousing, what is the other side, Bridget? What kind of technology or methods do hydrogeologists use? Let's leave that to Christine to explain. They use a variety of different methods. Recently, where the city of Cape Town is drilling for groundwater, we've seen gravity surveys being done on the Cape Flats aquifer, and that indicates where the aquifer is much thicker and where there's more, better quality water. A very traditional one is to use resistivity. So um, water is more conductive than dry rock, and you see quite a distinctive contrast in the resistivity signature if you do a survey over land particularly where the water is held in distinct fault structures so that doesn't work so well if you've got a big basin with groundwater occurring everywhere but if you've got an aquifer where the water is only occurring in these fault lines and people often envisage it as rivers flowing underground you know if you drill here there's a river that flows under here it very rarely flows like a river that 
that's only in limestone environments like we see in Pretoria and also around Oatshoorn, but it's normally held in tiny, tiny gaps and spaces and small pores in the rock and it's not sort of flowing with air space around it. Botswana is a water parched country and it experiences very little or sometimes no rainfall during the year. So the government is actively exploring other forms of supplying water to its citizens without using the piping infrastructure. So in the following, Liswaduda explains um, or talks about his reason for the water dowsing. I used it at work. So we were establishing a settlement in our district. There you call it a municipality. Here we say district. So then our ministry specified that for rural areas, we shouldn't use scientific methods or scientific surveyors. We have to use the indigenous people so that they use their indigenous knowledge. We managed to survey about 33 holes using the bottles to survey water. Bridget... After all of this, hearing the different sides of this story, I've got to say, even though I I do hear Christine and I hear that especially for very big risky projects, you probably want to maybe rely rather on hydrogeologists. I'm not unconvinced. I still sort of think if water dousing works for you, if you're finding the water that you need for your borehole or maybe you have no other techniques available to you, hey, why not? Yeah, especially when it works. I mean, this guy found 33. They drilled 33 boreholes and they provided water through water dousing. (laughs) Even if you talk to both sides, it's not always a straightforward answer. Sure not. And information on this segment was sourced from the livescience.com dowsing.co.za farm dairy.com and the newsvice.com Right. Stay listening on the Science Inside. This is the Science Inside with Elna. It's been a very interesting show. If you love trees or are very concerned about climate change, I highly recommend that you go to our podcast to listen to that story about the baobabs that are dying in southern Africa. Or if you just want to have a little bit of a chuckle, go have a listen to Unscience. Where we, today we were talking about toothpaste being made from cave rock. Yes, actual caves like the Starkfontein Caves just outside of Johannesburg here. And then lastly, we had a bit of a look at whether this idea of water dousing, so that's finding water underneath the ground by walking over it with an egg on your hand or that kind of uh, thing, whether that indigenous knowledge that's backed by science or not. Unfortunately, I can't give you a clear yes or no on that, but that was very, very interesting. And all of this you can find online. Our podcast, The Science Inside, is on iTunes and on vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. A big thank you to all of our guests featured on the show today, including Dominic Stratford, Sebeyile, Leswadula, Christine Corvin and Stephen Woodborn. Today, our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lepera and tech by Kuklana Sahame. On social media, you can find us as Val FM. My name is Alna Schutz. I will be with you again next week. And the Science Inside is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on Val FM 88.1. Thank you.
the Science Inside Podcast.